Welcome to the Positive Turbulence Podcast, Stories from the Periphery. Here we journey to the edge to talk to turbulators about their experiences creating positive change. Hi, I'm Rob Brodnick, your co-host. What can an anarchist with a useless degree in history teach you about business? Turns out a hell of a lot. Meet R.A. Winesweek, co-founder of the Ziggermans Community of Businesses, a thriving enterprise based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. This $65 million a year business started out life in 1984 as a small deli in a college town with an at the time unstated vision of creating something cool and unique. It was a great experience for every person who walked through the door. Hi, I'm Karen Zadinga, your co-host. The desire for cool, unique, and great experience led Ari and co-founder Paul Saginaw to evolving that deli into not a chain of more delis, as 99% of other business owners would have done, but into a community of synergistic businesses, an ecosystem, if you will. While the story is compelling in itself, what's even more interesting are the learnings, insights, and reflections about business that Ari has to share. All of it through the lens of an anarchist and historian. Stay tuned, and you'll most certainly be inspired to reflect on your mission and vision, and you may even want to bring a little anarchy to your work. This episode of Positive Turbulence is brought to you by the amazing people at Menlo Innovations, whose mission is to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. For the paired programmers at Menlo, Joy is designing and building something that actually sees the light of day and is enjoyably used and widely adopted by the people for whom it was intended. Learn more at MenloInnovations.com. Also, we'd like to thank Mac Avenue Music Group as a contributing sponsor. To hear our theme song, Late Night Sunrise, and other great music, head over to MacAvenue.com. So, all right, I, I live in Vancouver, BC. I don't know you anything. Sound like it. Yeah. Right. Do I say <laughs> not in a bad way? <laughs> Just, well, you know, it's as it is. I'd never heard of Zingerman's Zing Train, all of the Zing things. I hadn't heard any, yeah. about any well, of not, it. You're not the only person who never heard of it. How do you start with a deli in a in a college town? How does that naturally evolve into? <laughs> I can see, you know, the creamery. I can see a lot of the, the sort of spinoff businesses that support the deli. But I'm I'm struggling with the with the bigger picture, right? How, like a press and a training program. So it's not so much history that I'm interested in is evolution and how you how you well, see the, history, the connections. Yeah, the history informs the evolution because it's okay. it's mindfully chosen, not accidental. But I mean, the reason the history is important is because we we basically designed you know imperfectly what we have in 1993. But we opened the deli in 1982. There's an essay that you may or may not have seen in part one of the leadership book series that I did called 12 Natural Laws of Business. And the first natural law on the list is that every healthy organization of any size sort in Vancouver or West Virginia, it doesn't matter, all of them have a vision of where they're headed. And they may not call it a vision, they may not likely use the terminology or the way we define it here, but in somebody's head, they have one. And Paul and I, you know, in 1982, when we opened the deli March 15th, we had one in our heads. I mean, we didn't call it a vision per se, but I'm a history major. So all history is made up after the fact, you know, to somewhat what, so replicate what, was, what actually happened. So the key elements of that vision, I, I would say in hindsight, were from the beginning, we wanted something that would be unique. Like I can say a lot more about that now, but it's been true from the beginning is that I really 
didn't want something that was a copy of New York or Chicago or LA or, or Vancouver. We wanted something that would be unique to Ann Arbor and to us. We wanted great food and great service and a really positive place for people to work. And we wanted from the beginning, just I wanted really just to have one. I like unique things. I have since, you know, last year wrote a little pamphlet called The Art of Business, which is my belief that business and life are like art or music. And I'm drawn to the originals and not very much to copies. And, you know, but even whatever it is, 38 years ago, I mean, it's just, you know, in the food business, it's not like the seventh unit of something is evil, but it's really generally not that interesting. Uh, it's it's convenient if you live in the subdivision near where they put it, but it's mm-hmm. it's not like you go in there and you like totally are blown away. The owner's not there. You know, the energy is fine, but it's not great. And I'm much more drawn to when you walk into somewhere and there's only one of them and it's super cool and you've never really experienced anything quite like it. And I think that's true in music. I think it's true in art. I think it's true in social change. And I think it's true in business. So that that was really what we wanted. You know, the general wisdom when we opened was we were likely doomed to fail because Ann Arbor had, had a dozen delis closed in the previous decade. The neighborhood was considered a bad neighborhood. There was still no parking to, <laughs> to this day. And up until cell phones, which is, you know, was actually the first two thirds of our existence. People didn't have a phone in their pocket all day, so it wasn't that easy to find. You know, five, six, seven years later, we were considered geniuses. It turned out Ann Arbor always needed a deli and it was a really outstanding location that called for what we were doing. So, you know, that pattern has been repeated with pretty much everything that we've done. I like the paraphrase it, although the actual quotes in part three of the book series, but Arthur C. Clarke, the science fiction writer from what was then Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, said all revolutionary ideas go through three stages. Stage one, it's completely impossible. It'll never work. Stage two might be possible, but it's not very practical. And stage three, I was behind it from the beginning. Right. <laughs> so that's that's been repeated for us. And I think it's repeated everywhere. There's always resistance, you know, to anything that's in the making that's going to be great. In the summer of 93, one morning, mid-morning, when I should by all rights have been inside setting up the sandwich line to get ready for the lunch rush. Paul sat me down on the bench in front of the deli and he kind of looks at me and goes, okay, in 10 years, what are we doing? And, you know, I didn't know what we were doing. I just (laughs) needed to get back to work, but he didn't know what he wanted to be doing really either, but he had an instinctive sense that we had in essence fulfilled that original vision. In hindsight, I'm sure he couldn't sleep for months worrying about it. And, you know, he was like, well, we're, you know, we're only opening one. People are opening on campus. They're copying us. You know, we're turning down these offers from other cities. Is that crazy? You know, what are we doing? And in us, in our current language, what he was asking is, what's your vision? And I didn't really have one. Like I said, I don't think he had one either. But, you know, he realized, we, in essence, we had fulfilled that vision and attained what, you know, you could call midlife in your personal setting. So that question started a year-long argument, conversation, et cetera, that ended with us actually writing a vision for the first time using basically the form that we now use all the time. We've learned a lot more since then, but the basic format of it was what we now do. And that was where you, it's, it's where you write a description of the future as if you're already in the future. And we wrote one for 15 years out. So it was called Zingerman's 2009 because we wrote it in 94. 
And that vision described a community of Zingerman's businesses where each business would be a Zingerman's business. So one organization, but each would have its own specialty. So that would allow us to grow, but keep the uniqueness of the deli and that each business would have a managing partner in it. So somebody who had a real passion for whatever that business was going to do and was going to be in there for the duration and that the, all the, the businesses would operate in a synergistic way so that in essence, the sum of the community would be greater than the total of the individual parts if you added them up. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. where Zing Train came from is, you know, when you, one of the many, many benefits of writing a vision is when you share it with people, good people want to be part of an inspiring vision. And we had known Maggie Bayless, who's the partner in Zing Train, or one of them now, from the restaurant world when I started washing dishes and Paul was the general manager and Frank from the bakehouse was a line cook. Maggie started not long after as a cocktail waitress in that same restaurant. And anyway, she had, she was a German lit major from Oberlin College, but she had gone back later to Michigan to get her MBA and, you know, did that and went to work at GM for a few years, which she says was long enough to make sure she didn't want to do that kind of work. <laughs> <Right>. <clears throat> then, then left there and went to work in a small consulting firm here in town in the belief that the dysfunction would go away. But she discovered dysfunction wasn't tied to size. And then she says she would go home and lament to her husband, why can't I find something in my new passion for training that works the way Paul and Ari work. And that was around the time when we started to share this vision. And so she came and said, what about doing a training business? Because as you grow, you're going to want, you know, somebody who understands training better and et cetera, et cetera. So that's really where it came from. Wow. So it was that year, uh, you know, you went from, no, we're not going to have a copy of the deli in Ypsilanti and Traverse City and, mm-hmm. and all the different places we could to, you know, the, something else and the community of businesses emerged. I think it's fascinating. How do you hold this loose federation together? Like what's the, what's the stickiness of it and, and how do these, you know, support each other to be more than, more than the sum of their parts? Well, I think in the context of, of focus, <laughs> I think, again, focus obviously has its benefits, but to focus at the, to the detriment of what is a natural complexity of human and, and environmental or ecological existence is a mistake. So I think, you know, I've started to work more and more with the idea of business also as ecosystem. And in nature, there's a lot of connectivity. Nature is not hierarchical, but corporate mindset is hierarchical, which is why it teaches you to find the one thing. Mm -hmm. So in essence, you know, we need to create systems and culture, both that connect people, but still allow them to create their own space and, and to live as who they are either individually or collectively. And those connections make an enormous difference. So some of them are, we have a vision for the whole organization. So we govern the organization by our partners group, which is all the managing partners, which is, uh, I think, 18 now. And then five years ago, we added what we call staff partners. So these are three non-partners that become, in essence, part of the partners group for two-year terms. And we use a consensus model for decision-making there. So that's really where the organization, in essence, is run. It's not where each business is run, but it's where the organization is run. And Paul and I are part of that consensus. So we're in the group with everybody. So you have all of that. I mean, the Zingerman's name is universal to all of it. So like people know they're part of the organization. And then there's a lot of things that classes and training and stuff that's 
you know, crosses over businesses like on customer service or visioning or whatever. The sense of openness is coming through very clearly, right? The mm-hmm. sense of openness, collaboration, consensus-driven models. You know, I've been inside organizations that talk a lot about consensus and words like co-design, consensus, collaboration, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all the good co-words. And they talk about them, but that doesn't actually happen. Yeah. Right? Well, it's hard. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's all hard. It's just the hierarchical autocracy is also hard. It's just the hard people are used to. It's really just about treating people well and having positive beliefs about people and getting out of hierarchy. So, you know, this is a quote from Howard Ehrlich that I like a lot. It's something along the lines of like, who's going to start the anarchist revolution? And his answer is like everybody today, right now, you know, like you just, <laughs> just by how you treat people is already a step towards a positive future. And, waiting for the other people to do it first just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I've heard you talk about this before, and I realized, Ari, that it's a mindset shift. And as you begin to shift your mindset, as I was uh, trying to discover and understand what you were saying, the points you were trying to make, I I started to get it a little bit. And, Mm -hmm. And I heard you advocate that if you live a good life and you live in balance with nature, that there's these natural principles that start to become clear. And I think you've articulated them as the natural laws of business. How did that process go for you? I mean, from like doing the right thing to all of a sudden having a framework to operate from. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think Paul and I were, you know, we're always fairly mindful of trying to run a good business, you know, whatever that means. And as we grew, then we started to realize each in our own ways at slightly varying points, you know, that studying leadership or understanding organizations or learning about business itself was as important as the food. And not that the food's not critical because it's still critical, but that as we had more and more people, you know, we started with two employees, but when you have 20 and then 40 and then whatever, it became as important to work on the organization itself and on our abilities as leaders as it was to work on making the food better. So, you know, the more we studied, the more we learned, the more we learned, the more we studied. And that's still going on to this day. When we started Zinc Train in 94, then it pushed us to take it even to a higher level because we started to teach it about a year later to the outside. And, you know, like anything, when you have to learn it at the level where you need to be able to teach it, then it pushes you in a good way to be able to explain things, you know, more effectively than one would do if one's just standing next to somebody coaching them on what to do. So the idea of natural laws specifically came from Paul, who used to talk about it in kind of a general sense. And then eventually I took that and started to put, you know, more detail to it. And that's where the the list of 12 natural laws of business came from. And actually working on another list of more natural laws that I didn't know about at the time. But, you know, the whole idea of it is just that all healthy organizations are living in harmony with those 12 laws and they don't have to know they are and they don't have to understand it per se. They just do it because it seems like the right thing. But, you know, in the same way that as a history major, I can honestly say I don't quite understand how gravity works, but I do know which way my phone's going to go if I let go of it and I make my decisions (laughs) accordingly. And so it doesn't really matter that much if I understand it or not, unless I want to be a physicist, you know, or start designing airplanes. But in the context of business, I mean, it's just people have an idea. They have a dream, right? That's their vision. They 
make products that they really believe in. That's natural law number two. You know, they're compelling. They have compelling products and services. So if you go down the list, it's it's just stuff that I, I will suggest that really every organization that's getting to greatness, and I don't mean necessarily making the most money, but getting to greatness of their choosing has a vision. Every human that is getting to greatness of their choosing has a vision. And whether that's a vision of great parenting or, you know, a basketball team, they all have it and right on down the list. So, so then out of that, it just kept, you know, I kept moving more and more in that direction and then starting to realize that, you know, when you violate nature on the planet, we know that a lot of problems come. And then it started, it dawned on me one day when I was getting ready to present at the Inc. Magazine conference on the natural laws of business, it dawned on me that organizations who were violating the nature, hence violating the natural laws of business, were violating human nature. And that as a result, they were creating a comparable energy crisis, only this one was in the workplace and it's a crisis of human energy and that, you know, everybody's familiar with. I mean, it manifests as apathy and cynicism and disengagement and all those things that we all read about and try to avoid in our own organizations. And like hierarchy is unnatural, but organizations with industrial thinking have, we've all been trained to like go up the chain, right? But the problem is at the top, we don't know what we're doing. Like we know a lot, but we don't, there's a lot we don't know. And it, it teaches organizations to basically close out 95% of the ability that they're paying for, which is, you know, I never went to business school, but it doesn't make a lot of sense. So it's, it's really, you know, then following up that through and understanding like, you know, even the person we just fired last week still is a good human being mm -hmm. and they still know stuff that would help us. And, you know, the more we work with that, the more it makes sense. So when you're asking how you hold the organization together, one of the many things we do is what we call one plus one work, which is the first one is people's main job. The plus one is optional, but it's where they might teach a class. They might be on a, you know, cross organization work group, et cetera, et cetera. But where they're getting into a second piece of work where they are using a different part of their skill set or their brain where they're meeting different people, et cetera, so that you're creating these connections across business lines and not just through the hierarchy. Right. So, so in nature, like in nature, that's what's going on. Like everything serves multiple purposes in nature. Nothing does only one thing, but the mythology of the corporate industrial model is that your job is to do X, answer the phone, pack the boxes, make the coffee. And then we don't want you to be, we want you to focus on that and don't, we don't want to bother you with anything else, but it is, it's actually unnatural. Hey Rob, you know as well as I do that producing quality software isn't easy. It takes a high-functioning team using the right tools. At Menlo Innovations, they have what it takes. Paired programming, open space collaboration, frequent client feedback, short iterative work cycles, and in the end, they're all about quality. Find out more at menloinnovations.com. Talk you know. to you. Briefly, Ari, about the difference between mission and vision. I know you covered yeah. that off in your book, but yeah. I think it's a really, like when I was reading that, I, I was like, oh! Right, exactly. So, so I'm actually sitting within 10 feet of where probably eight or nine years ago, I was walking from where I am right now over across the street to the coffee company and this guy pulled up to park and he gets out of his car and he goes, hey, you know, how you, how's it going? And I kind of recognize him. I don't even know. I didn't know his name really, but you know, he goes, I've, I just finished reading your first book and that uh, uh, was great. And he goes, I got to tell you, like, 
you know, he was like my age. He's like, I, I've been reading business books for 30 years. He goes, this is the first time in my entire life. I understood, I actually understood the difference between mission and vision. And mm-hmm. they're, they're two totally as we, you know, I'm not here to tell other people what to do. I mean, they can all do what they want to do, but the general use of the two, I've never understood the difference either. And I've never actually met anybody who understood the difference. They all just keep doing it because they get told they're supposed to do it. And it's mm-hmm. sort of come to believe it's a little like the emperor's new clothes. Nobody, nobody actually understands it, but they all just keep mm-hmm. doing it. But as we do it, the mission statement, and as you said, it's in part one of the book, but mission statement essay is meant to answer four questions. And these are commonly discussed out there in the world. But what do we do? Why are we doing it? Sorry, which is now commonly just talked about as purpose. Who are we that's doing it? And for whom are we doing it? So what do we do? Why are we doing it? Who are we? And for whom are we doing our work? So as we view it, the mission's like the North Star because you can always move towards it, but you never arrive. It's not really that specific. So our vision talks about bringing people a great experience, which has been super helpful for us because it's one of the pieces of our organizational health, I guess, is that we teach everybody that we're all 100% responsible for the quality of the experience that we bring, right? And that's our jobs. That's the number one job that we have or the most important part of all of our jobs is to bring everybody a great experience. And when we do that, we're living our mission. So it's like the North Star when you feel confused, tired, and overwhelmed, which I generally do all the time. I just take a deep breath and remind myself that I'm just here to bring people a great experience. It's not rocket science. It's not neurosurgery. Just be nice to people. <laughs> and every nine-year-old could do it. But that mission doesn't really tell you what you're actually doing. And so the vision is different because as we do it, a vision is time constraint specific and time constrained. It's way more detailed and much longer. So our mission is, I think, six lines long. Most of the world is doing vision statements that, as you alluded, look a lot like a mission statement that mm-hmm. I don't really understand the difference. Our visions, like our vision for the year 2020, which we wrote in 07, is nine pages long because it's a description of the future that you want to create, not yeah. what you could create, but what you want to create. And it's a blend, which is a lot where I think a lot of the power is, is it's a blend of, it, yes, it's got some numbers in there, like roughly how profitable are you are, roughly how big are you, because you know, like ours said, 12 to 18 businesses. I don't think it mattered if it said 11 or 20, but it's not 200 or 2000 or two, right? So you have some sense of what we're creating, but it also has emotion in it. How do people feel when they work here? How does the community feel about us? It's a story basically. And when you bring the emotion and the data together, I think that's where the most power is because there's nothing in our mission statement that would preclude us from opening 2000 Zingerman's delis all over the world. Right. Like you can make a logical argument that that's more aligned with the mission. Right. But the question of the vision is what do you, what kind of life do you want to create? Like not what's possible, what's inspiring for you and what do you believe is true to who you are? And that's a whole different question. Is there a risk of limitation in defining the vision? Well, there's a risk. What I learned the hard way is everything's risky. So not defining it's risky because you don't know where you're going. Defining it is risky. And yes, you are choosing implicitly what you're not going to do when you describe what you are going to do. And that does come up when I teach visioning fairly regularly. And usually Mm -hmm. I just 
look around the room at people's ring fingers and then I pause <laughs> and I go, aren't you limiting yourself? <laughs> and aren't, aren't you missing a lot of opportunity? And they all kind of sheepishly smile and go, yes. And I'm like, okay, what's the difference? You know, if you work at anything half-heartedly, you're not going to get to greatness. The vision essentially is like the cathedral that we're working to construct. And, you know, the classic whatever fable is, you know, the guy who goes to the construction site of the Duomo in Milan and he sees, you know, the people working and he comes to the first person and says, what are you doing? And he's, the first guy says, I'm building a, I'm laying stone. And he walks to the second person, what are you doing? And she says, I'm building a cathedral, right? So in essence, is there any difference in the actual work? No, they just put mortar down and stones down and then they go home and they come back and they just keep doing it. But emotionally, you know, obviously the difference is you understand that you're creating something amazing. And even if all you did is put 10 layers of stone down without your layers of stone, it wouldn't exist. And, and you can, in your mind, imagine this much greater thing that you can imagine people going into the, you know, I'm not religious, but you can imagine people going into the cathedral to pray and the inspiration that comes with it and the community role it's going to play. And it's all in part because of your work. Right. And so, when people understand that, it changes their relationship to their work and to the organization and really to themselves. You know, what happens in many cases, and it could have happened to us also, is in essence, you didn't write down your vision. You didn't put a date on it because you didn't know about visioning. You started your business the way we did. And in essence, you complete the vision, which is when Paul sat me down on the bench that day, you know, to ask me what I wanted to be doing. Hmm. Without pausing, to write a new vision, what I've started to teach is basically it's like the cathedral's been completed, but the workmen keep coming. Huh. Do you know and they need to get paid so that you just keep adding on. <laughs> just keep building and building. Yeah. And so in part four of the book, which has an essay on further thoughts about and, and learnings and beliefs about visioning, I realized metaphorically, I don't know if you've been there. I actually haven't been there. I've only read about it, but there's something in San Jose, California called the Winchester Mystery House. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know what that is. So it's, it was <laughs> yeah. started as a mansion uh, in the second half of the 19th century by Samuel Winchester, who's the guy who invented the repeating rifle. When he died unexpectedly, his widow went to a mystic to find out what to do next, right, with her life. And the mystic said, all the souls of the people killed by your husband's rifles are going to come and get you. What? <laughs> Yeah. And no, no there's a way, way out. Right? There's a way but out. if you pay me, I'll, no. No, no. The only way out is that you need to continue the construction of this mansion that he had begun construction of before he died that's not yet completed. And as long as you're doing the building, the souls won't harm you. So for like 38 years, they just kept building. So it ended up with like 160 rooms and there's like bathrooms that don't work and staircases that lead to nowhere and windows that open into other rooms, not to the outside. And it's, you know, it's a big mess. But the point became only to keep building, not to make elegance and beauty. And so that's I, what I would suggest actually happens and has happened to countless organizations. 
a lot of big ones that, you know, started with whatever there was a max, you know, there was like, you know, Mr. Ford who started his company and whether I like all of his business principles or not, he had a vision in his head. Right. And that's Mm -hmm. true. Most of those giant companies were started by somebody and they had a vision in their head, but we're now 80 years or a hundred years or 50 years down the road. And that vision's long since been completed and they've added a pool to the back of the cathedral and somebody added a second story and, they tore off one of the walls and, you know, and each thing on its own seems logical, but the elegance and, and the amazing design that that human had in his or her head when they started it, you know, is now long since lost. Right. And, mm-hmm. and that's what happened. So that's the difference. Afraid to, afraid to step off the path that someone else had set well, you on. And, you know, just yeah. like with the Winchester widow, she, she, you know, she, there was fear that was keeping her in that constant state of, yeah, of, of building and and renovating when you know the the souls were looming, right? So well, and it's it's not even like the ideas themselves that like in her case that was the only motivation. But I, I'm not doubting that there's merit to what people do. It's just does it fit? Is it coherent and consistent with with this amazing thing you're trying to build? Because of the visioning process has a, is time constrained, then it tells people like, okay, the vision's done. Now what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And that opens the door to redesigning. But if you don't go through that exercise, you just keep adding on. So let me let me ask you a couple of questions, Ari. Part of it is, you know, the, the concept of the, the podcast, Positive Turbulence, looking at things that disrupt the status quo or, or yeah. unexpected or different. And yeah. then that creates well, that, really we, good we outcomes. Fit that bill. <laughs> we, you fit that bill really, really well. Mm-hmm. And I, I've identified a couple of things I wanted to ask you about. And okay. the one you've already inti- foreshadowed and anticipated several times. You introduced yourself, and you do often as a as a lapsed anarchist. And the first yeah. time I heard that, well, you know, I, less and less anarchy, now. I got this kind of like, oh, this is this could be disruptive <laughs> and negative. And you know, we're talking about uh, sort of you know the positive outcomes of this. But as I heard you describe it it really clicked and made sense to me. So maybe uh, for yeah, our listeners, what is, what is this anarchy and how does it lead oh, to good things? Yeah, yeah. So I studied Russian history here at, in Ann Arbor at University of Michigan. I studied particularly the anarchists. U of M has the largest anarchist collection in the country on the seventh and now also eighth floor of the graduate library. It's called the Labadie collection. And, you know, I was drawn to it for any number of reasons, respect for individual uniqueness and free thinking and all creativity and all of that kind of stuff. But when I, you know, then I got a job as a dishwasher because there's nothing you can do with a history degree except go back (laughs) to school and get more degrees, which was not depressing or shocking. I knew that when I got it, I was supposed to go back to school, but I never did. Anyway, you know, then I started prepping and line cooking after my, I was a pretty good dishwasher in hindsight. And then at some point, whatever, two years in, I started, I took a job managing in the kitchens. And so, you know, I tried kind of naively leaving everybody alone in the hope they would just do the right thing, which is a little bit embedded in in a lot of anarchist stuff. And of course that failed. And so I, you know, started to say jokingly, I was a lapsed anarchist because I still believed in it, but I didn't practice. (laughs) And that's just sort of stayed like that for, I don't know, 20 years. And when I would bring it up at business conferences, people don't know, like you don't know, you know, not out of malice, but they don't know anything about anarchism. They have mostly negative beliefs, which is it's about throwing rocks and chaos and burning down buildings. And it's actually not about any of that at all. 
in the same way that Christianity isn't all about the Crusades and Islam isn't all about 9-11 and, you know, the United States isn't all about the My Lai Massacre, right? So there's always outliers of problems. But anyway, 10 years ago or so, when I was working on part one of the book, which we've been referencing, I got asked to speak at the Jewish Studies Department by Deborah Dash Moore, who was then the head of the department. And the previous year, I had written like a 10,000 word essay about Jewish rye bread, because I also write about food. And she had read it and you know, she thought, oh, this would be great if you come talk to the department and I'm going to call it rye bread and an- or anarchism on rye or something like that because <laughs> I studied anarchist, but I was doing this other work. And I thought, okay, that sounds, you know, whatever, run with right. it. You know, as is often the case in academia that we agreed to do that, I would do the talk like eight, nine, 10 months in advance of the talk. So mm. there was no rush on my part to like figure out what I was going to say. But you know, the clock ticks in a good way. And so then it was like two or three months out. And I'm like, you know, at business conferences, nobody knows who the anarchists were. So whatever, I'm the expert in the room, but (laughs) now I'm going to go to Jewish studies and they all actually have studied Emma Goldman and all these people. And I'm going to look like a total idiot because I haven't looked at my books in all these, you know, literally decades. So I literally dug out my old books and I started to reread stuff and it really blew my mind. Two reasons. One, because even though I hadn't thought of it or been conscious of it, much of what we had already created was aligned with what I was reading. And I had, you know, it's sort of like you have something in your head at a subconscious level, you create it. And then even more blew my mind because I started to realize that a ton of what is now called progressive business was actually stuff that they were writing about and talking about a hundred years ago. They were going to jail for it. You know, Jim Collins and Peter Senji got on the bestseller list, but it's actually very parallel and, you know, stuff like self-organizing work teams and learning that hierarchy is not helpful and respecting every individual and people doing work they believe in. And all of that stuff was stuff that people like Emma Goldman were talking about very controversially a hundred years ago. And essentially anarchism is the opposite of chaos. It's the opposite of violence. And it's not about being disorganized. It's all about organization. It's just about involving the people in the organization in designing what they're part of. So instead of the industrial model, which is all about hierarchy, where the bosses go and design it, but don't involve the other people, this is where you're treating everybody like the intelligent, creative human that they are, and they participate in running the organization of which they're a part. And in essence, anarchism is a belief system. Mm -hmm. So within that, you know, Emma Goldman was writing about this 100 years ago. People, our work as an organization is to help everybody in it get to greatness. And our work as an organization is to honor the inherent uniqueness of everyone because there's no two people that are alike. But -hmm. the industrial model is the opposite. It's very dehumanizing. And much of society has embraced so many of those beliefs and doesn't even know it. So people have learned to stop saying like, well, you know how black people are, you know how Jews are, but they still say stuff all the time. Like, you know how the millennials are, <laughs> which right. is just completely dehumanizing and, and unnatural. Right. And for me, then, as I started to study more, like how are we unconsciously allowing hierarchy to get in our way organizationally? How do we teach people different set of beliefs? How do we build kindness and generosity and care into everyday interactions, you know, how do we treat people in a, in a way that respects who they are and helps them become themselves? And in essence, that is anarchism. And, you know, so we've done stuff like all our meetings are open. 
right? Which actually is 180 degrees counter to what most people would believe to be right. But honestly, why not? Like, unless it's on some top secret, you know, security issue or you're Mm -hmm. working on some product, like in the food business, there's not a lot of food secrets. So I don't really care, but you know, I get it. Like if you're in technology and you have something that takes five years to develop the product and you really don't want everybody to know, but that's a tiny percentage of the world's meetings. So other than that, like whatever, if, if there's a new employee at the coffee company, they might have some good perspective on what we should do. Mm-hmm. And you're missing that perspective when you only close it off and limit it to the hierarchy. This is perhaps going to be an awkward segue, but I'm going to give it a shot. It's okay. Many segues are awkward, but. <laughs> <laughs> segue <with> defined. <laughs> Lately, I've been thinking a lot about creativity and innovation and the differences between organizations that are, say, very product-focused. I've spent a lot of the last 20 years inside tech organizations, and they've got one way of approaching creativity and innovation, and they like to Mm. yell about, you know, fail fast to succeed and talking about Mm. methods like lean and agile, and and there's a lot of of hype. And there's a lot, a lot of failure like 80% of new products failed mm-hmm. despite all this, this shouting. And, and I feel like you're doing something, you're very innovative. You've been around for a long time now and you continue mm-hmm. to innovate and continue to change. And I feel like you're doing something different mm-hmm. than yeah, that's what not I'm awkward. seeing. <laughs> why, why did you think that was awkward? Well, because <laughs> I wasn't, it wasn't fully formed, I guess, in, in no, my head. That's okay. <laughs> but that's, that was so one of the key beliefs or principles of anarchist thinking, which I've written a lot about, is that the means that we use need to be congruent with the ends that we want to achieve, right? Mm-hmm. The means we use need to be congruent with the ends we want to achieve. So to the contrary, you, the way you did the segue was totally congruent with the concept of creativity because you took a chance to say what was in your heart and you know, with the normal anxiety that it might be wrong. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So actually it was a beautiful segue. Yeah, I agree with you. I wrote about creativity in part three of the book and I tell the story in that essay of which I never really thought about creativity (laughs) at all Mm -hmm. until around 2009 when, or 10, when all of a sudden, you know, not like overnight, but I mean, fairly consistently over a period of months, we started to get all these inquiries for me to speak about creativity and or innovation. And I was already speaking quite a bit and we were already zinc trained and, you know, I had books out and like, I don't know anything about creativity and people are like, come on, what are you talking about? Like, right. look at what you guys do. And I'm like, I don't know, whatever. I don't think about it. And then, you know, I get another inquiry and then I start feeling bad. Like, Maybe there's something wrong with us. Like we have all these (laughs) internal classes, but we don't teach creativity. Like maybe we're, you know, messed up. And then, you know, more questions come and people are like, you know, sort of back to where you started, you know, like, so do your employees get 20% creative time to just like Google? Mm. And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, when are they supposed to be creative? I'm like, I don't know all the time. Like, aren't you just creative? And you know, then they're like, well, who's in charge of creativity, which by the way is, <laughs> is, is, uh, is uh, Can you point to the place in the hierarchy where creativity right, resides? Right. Well, that's right? what they're looking for. Who's in charge of creativity? I'm like, no one's in charge of creativity. And they're like, well, where does it, when does it happen? I'm like, hopefully all day. Yeah. You know, and as I would tell some of those 
anecdotally to some of the people who work here, they would all laugh too, because it's sort of like, you know, so incongruous with how we exist. But like many things, when they happen, and if I'm on my game, then it pushes me to think and reflect more. And I started to realize what was going on. So 2009, 10, you might've blacked out, but was when the economy crashed. And I realized with, with the creativity, all those big organizations, basically their creativity had atrophied. And then when the economy crashed, they start calling for a speaker to come and bring it back. You know, in the same way you want your coach to get you in shape in three weeks, it's not going to work. And then I started to study creativity. So what I would now say, which is very aligned with anarchist thinking and not only anarchist thinking, but is that everybody's born creative. It's just society beats it out of us. So it's, it's, again, when you live in harmony with nature and you're working in a healthy ecosystem, creativity is just there. Rollo May said the opposite of courage is not cowardice, it's conformity. You know, that's a lot of what anarchism is a reaction to is the pressure to socially conform. And mm-hmm. so the opposite of that is to stay who you are. And that means <laughs> because everybody's different, you're always doing creative things. Yeah. But it's a lot of work, too. Everything's work. That's yeah. the thing. And yeah. this is, you know, work has gotten a bad name, but I, I think good work is creative work. And that the belief because of the industrial model that, you know, a frontline job isn't creative work is unhelpful and unhealthy. And so by involving people from the get go, if they're willing to be involved in helping run the organization, then you end up with people like Joey Quick that works here who started as a busboy. I think he's been at the Roadhouse five years. Now he's a server, but he's also, he's on our governance committee helping design governance for us, whatever we are, $65 million company. And he chairs the service group at the Roadhouse. So they're working on systems for service. And, you know, so instead of just being a, a, a waiter, you're doing all this other work. And then, yeah, he still waits tape. Mm -hmm. it's still important but rather than isolating the one from the other it's much more like in nature where a tree serves multiple purposes so it provides shade it provides fruit it provides an anchor in the soil it you know photosynthesis and all those you know there's dozens and dozens of things that the tree is doing and it really needs to be the same for people so it's all work it's just which work do you want to do when you write a vision you've chosen the work that you want to do when you're doing work you've chosen to do, it's a whole lot more fun and your engagement and relationship to the work will be totally different than if you're doing work that you think is terrible. You know, Wendell Berry, who's I've never met, but is an amazing writer who's now like 85 and lives still in his town of his birth in Kentucky, said, you know, that the, he said that it's clear that the major American aspiration and probably in Canada too, is to attain unemployment. Everybody lives for <laughs> five o'clock the weekend in retirement. And it's mm-hmm. true, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that the sort of belief is like the only people, you know, that work are the people who aren't rich enough to not work or workaholics. But like everything's work, like raising kids and staying home is work. You know, mm-hmm. doing your garden at home is work, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so it, the difference is that you chose it and that you see beauty in it and that you see benefit in it and you believe that it's meaningful. Yeah. And work can be like that at work too. And is there repetition in it? Of course. (laughs) LeBron James' work is mostly practicing and lifting weights and working out and watching game film. 
you know, parenting is not all glamour as anybody who has kids knows, you know, gardening is a lot of digging in the dirt. It's just when you have a vision in your head of this amazing garden, you're going to create, it's inspiring. And then you start studying plants and then you're trying to figure out the interrelationships and how do you keep them healthy? And it's all, you know, really cool. But then people go to work and their brain turns off. There's a, I believe maybe a trajectory in your, your work, Ari, where some of the, the last book left off, I've read your recent article, The Art of Business. And so yeah. the role of the arts in business, that's, that's a connected concept to positive turbulence. And, you know, we advocate using the arts to create inspiration and see the world differently and, and understand yeah. metaphor and whatnot. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. Yeah. where maybe your writing's going with that? Yeah, I would say it's actually, I don't know if beyond is the right word, but I think they're one and my point is that they're one and the same. Mm -hmm. It's all art and it's all music and it's all poetry and great business is great art and bad business is bad art. And that's not to say you can't make money from bad business in the same way that people make money from bad art. And that the, the person who basically copies the, the innovative musician, but does it in a way that gets their music out more probably makes way more money. But people who are paying attention to music are still going to be drawn to the one who, you know, who did it first in a cool way. So, yeah, so I think it's all art. And then when you start to think about your life as you're an artist, even if your job is sweeping sidewalks, I think it's a whole lot more interesting. I mean, there's beauty everywhere. And I believe when we start to look at our lives as we're creating beauty, we pay way more attention. So, you know, I've said it to some, you know, when I spoke to a group of like 18 year olds, I'm like, look, you're making music. What music do you want people to listen to that's yours 50 years from now? Mm. You know, because people are still listening to stuff Mozart wrote or Bob Dylan did or the Beatles or whatever. And it's not updated. <laughs> right. It's, it's the same song that Bob Dylan wrote in whatever 1964 is the same song we're listening to him now. And it's amazing. And that does not to say there's not 18 year olds right now making amazing music. I listen to a lot of them, but you know, so if you look at your business as you're creating this amazing thing, that's going to create beauty that people will appreciate and be positively impacted by for the ages. I think it's a whole lot different than what's the cheapest structure we can build and get out of here with a lot of money. Yeah. Agreed. So anyway, so just starting to realize that and then starting to encourage people to look for the beauty because it's around us and then to create beauty because the more beauty there is, the better it's going to go. And beauty could be in how you greet the person next to you and how you treat your significant other when you get home and, you know, all of that. And John O'Donohue, the Irish, late Irish philosopher and theologian said that we're, the world is suffering essentially from a crisis of ugliness. And I believe he's accurate. And he said that long before the current political situation. So if we're suffering from a crisis of ugliness, then the antidote is more beauty, right? And this is aligned with anarchism too, because it's not about taking over and changing everything. It's just in tiny little acts that you create more and more beauty in your, in your ecosystem. And out of that, it doesn't fix the whole world's problems, but you can't fix the whole world's problems. It's too big. You could just yeah. work on your own space and be supportive of other people working creatively on their space. And ultimately a lot of people working caringly and creatively creates a meaningful change. Mm. And whether that's, you know, working for human rights or whether that's, you know, working to honor people of every 
ethnicity or race, whatever, which is important work, but that's art too. And it's, it's honoring the beauty in each of those people. I love it. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lovely, lovely night. Thank you. Before we thank our episode and contributing sponsors, I want to encourage you, our lovely listeners, to stay tuned for this episode's positive turbulence moment coming up in about 10 seconds. First off, thank you to AMI, who have nurtured us in developing the podcast, is the source of so many of our guests, and of course, the founder, Stan Griskevich, is also the author of the original book, and dare I say, the zingiest positive turbulator. For the people at Menlo Innovation, there is joy beyond the beauty of delivering high-quality software to their clients. In fact, the most gratifying part of their work is the stories of the impact that their software and process has on their clients, users, and their team. They call this the Menlo Effect. Find out more at MenloInnovations.com. And thank you to Mac Avenue Music Group, our contributing sponsor, for providing our podcast soundtrack, Late Night Sunrise. And here's our positive turbulence moment where Ari makes the deep connection between anarchism and progressive business. The most recent pamphlet that I did is the Emma Goldman pamphlet, Mm -hmm. and I referenced her quickly before, but J. Edgar Hoover called her the most dangerous woman in America 100 years ago, which if you want positive turbulence, I think that she would have have been a poster child for it, but she was way ahead of her time. And I'll Mm -hmm. just read you one little quote from her which is is one of the ones that really cemented or whatever the word is in my head the connection between anarchism and progressive business because she wrote this in like 1910 or 1911 about anarchism but when i read it i'm like this is what we're trying to create in the workplace she said our goal is the freest possible expression of all the latent powers of the individual which is only possible in a state of society where man is free to choose the mode of work, the conditions of work, and the freedom to work. One to whom the making of the table, the building of a house, or the tilling of the soil is what the painting is to the artist and discovery to the scientist. Mm -hmm. The result of inspiration, of intense longing, and deep interest in work as a creative force. My email is ari at zingermans.com, and if people want to reach out, they can. If you want to share a positive turbulence moment or otherwise comment on what you're hearing, please drop us a line at podcast at positiveturbulence.com. We welcome your thoughts. Be sure to tune in next episode when we'll be talking to Lily DeGama, the food waste doctor, and Chesta Tiwari, a food waste expert who will turbulate how you look at food. You can also head over to PositiveTurbulence.com to find out more about us, get a transcript of this episode, learn about our wonderful sponsors, Positive Turbulence, our guests, or check out our very cool and very diverse reading, watching, and listening to list. Until next time, keep the turbulence positive. 